So what that means is value investing is the way to go. Human behavior is broken, and I will continue to collect massive investing returns over here at Dougal's. There's the main takeaway from the book. I think that's actually the last paragraph in the book. I heard none of that in what you just said. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Not since the 1980s, my friend. Have I looked this cool or what? I mean, you are wearing like a members only fleece. (laughs) That's right. It's like half pajamas, half coat. So comfortable. There's a rise, a rise of a company and an individual with that company. And then the king was dethroned, not since the 1980s. Yeah. Which company is this in the 80s? I was talking about Steve Jobs and Apple. It's not really comparable, though. It's not actually comparable, but that's what came to mind. Sam Altman, suddenly, unexpectedly, no longer the CEO of OpenAI, which makes ChatGPT, which is what? brought AI really to the masses, to the retail masses, approximately one year ago. What do you think is going on? Speculate. There's been lots of speculation. Apparently, uh, someone else convinced the board that he was working too quickly and too motivated by profit. And OpenAI has this weird corporate structure where there's like part of it that's a nonprofit, yet they'll still take billions of dollars from Microsoft. And part of it is a capped for-profit organization. But he just lost the vote, man, which I guess maybe speaks to keeping your stakeholders happy. If the rumors are true, and that's actually what he got fired for, like, I am flabbergasted. <laughs> he, he got fired for maybe making the company too much money, maybe being a little too much of a celebrity, and maybe working a little too quickly. It's a startup, man. That Yeah, that doesn't feel like the... It could be the real story. Maybe it turns out to be, but that does not feel like for this suddenly, like if, if that's going to be the story, it wouldn't be something where the CTO who's taking over the interim CEO gets advised on this the night before he gets like a text that says, let me talk to you at noon. That is a situation where it's like a, a difference in strategy effectively is an ongoing battle. And then it's, there's a, you're right. The dust hasn't settled on this story. We are talking Saturday morning after it happened, right? So maybe this will all be out of date by the time the program airs. But there's there's some pretty solid reporting that seems to be confirmed by some of his own words that the main thing here is a culture clash, which is funny because the rumor mill right after it happened was like he did something very, very bad. But the confidence of his statement regarding i'm gonna be just fine don't worry don't lose any sleep over me he he seems pretty delighted at the prospect and opportunities that he's gonna have coming off of this we'll see and the value of speculation may not be worthwhile but open ai is about eight years old something like that as a company when you run a company for that long and then there's a an ousting that happens within hours and it's effective immediately what, what is the point of having this news is not positive news for open AI. Like it creates a lot of swirl around an organization like that. In order to create that amount of swirl for a board, there has to be some ROI on it. At least you're, you're trying to cut losses. Cause like, what's the, if it's a culture clash, what is the, what's the downside of saying that there's going to be a transition and I'm going to leave over the next six months and we're going to search for a CEO, like a culture clash doesn't, there's not a lot of cost that comes with that. Unless the culture clash is highly toxic, like abusive, the company might go under. That is the situation. Completely. That is the logical conclusion here. In addition to that, Microsoft, who owns 49% of the company, was notified apparently two minutes, one minute before the public press release. The venture back, the early venture backers, uh, didn't get a say or advance warning. It it screams like something really bad happened and he was pushed out forcefully. Um, and I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Here's what I want to talk to my um, startup expert, as I call you over there. How does Microsoft not have a board seat? Like, Because 
you think about the was it 10 billion dollars that microsoft wrote the check for um a while back it's I mean, something like that i can't remember they might it's very possible they were investing in sam and they never dreamed that sam was just going to be kicked to the curb on some random friday afternoon it's very possible they were investing in the technology and it's probably a combination of all those things but how those big investors didn't have much say in the board. I don't know the backstory here specifically, but I find it fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's just the terms of the agreement. They probably had enough confidence. I don't know, but it, I, I was actually surprised that that was the case as well. The The thing that, that goes toward the, in my mind, the thing that goes toward the idea that it wasn't just like foul play from Sam Allman is the fact that his co-founder was also removed from the board at the same time not from the company but from the board which well, is interesting he quit immediately and then he quit yeah yeah but they they removed him from the board which is a like so it's that's not just a, a sam altman did something like a sexual allegation kind of thing right like that doesn't in, impact the co-founder being removed from the board so there might be yeah something in that but it's also something where the, the cto is being made interim ceo so Anything that would have to do with the technology itself likely isn't the case. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. We'll I, see. His, the co-founder was chair of the board, I, if I remember correctly. That's right. I find it fascinating that they the board fired Sam without a vote from the chair. <laughs> um, yeah, what is the structure? At the same it's point, the... told him that the chair was like, yeah, I don't deal with boards all the time, but that seems it, it at least is like fishy it's just awkward it's weird i guess we'll let the dust settle on this so sam what it means is between sam altman and his co-founder i think greg brockman something like that between sam altman and his co-founder they didn't have enough voting power that this wasn't possible mm -hmm. and microsoft who owns 49 percent of the company also didn't right which we know that that is a strange situation especially in today's day and age and from someone sam is a the, you know y combinator used to run y combinator and is the one that like not just the only but that gives advice to founders around how to maintain control of yep. your organization as you raise yep. it's it's really fascinating good learning experience for him i'm sure what yeah. the, the, here's where i thought you were going what it means is all the ai startups that are trying to copy open ai just found it a lot harder to raise money and Sam Altman, unless something massive comes out in the next two weeks, goes around collecting $100 billion checks with whatever he wants, because <laughs> he's just going to be like, I'll just do it better. And and I have all the, the talent is loyal to me, and they're going to step aside. Like, this is where the decision of the board, we need all the facts to come out, but it just appears to make no sense. I'm going to um, write him a $100 billion check myself, post-dated, for 2063. There we go. I'm going to give him 8% of my retirement. <laughs> oh, gosh. Dave Ramsey's back? Is Dave Ramsey back? <laughs> Dave Ramsey's back for later in the show. Uh, one other newsy thing, if you're ready to switch gears. Jim Chanos, who's a really famous short seller. I'm not going to talk about him too much, but legendary short seller, if you've never heard of him, is closing up shop. Here's the one stat that I wanted to throw out, and then I want to tell you how the perfect movie goes with this. He managed $6 billion in 2008, and now he manages close to $200 million. It's been a 13-year bull run, man. It's tough to be someone who is shorting stocks during that time and be successful. You kind of need some more recent turmoil for the bets on stocks going down to truly um, catch the imagination of your average investor, but also perform well. I like the the first part of what you just stated there too, because it's the raising of funds as well as the actual performance of the fund, mm -hmm. both of those. And this is a hard time, although a lot of people are being pessimistic, like that perma bears and whatnot. But it is this is a hard fifteen years to be someone that's screaming uh, with your when it's necessary for you to scream and market the fact that you're going to bet against this bull run. This is a really hard time to be raising money, so I can understand that from that perspective. I wonder what the annual returns were of the fund. The things that I saw were, I only saw like the last couple of years. So I wasn't sure. For example, last year, 2022, made money. Yep. Unsurprisingly, if you, if you are a short seller, 
made money. Prior to that, I'm not sure what the returns were of the fund. Yeah, I think I think they're not mind blowing, which is why they're not publicly posted. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> it's a tough time to short stocks. I mean, he's famous for picking a fight with Enron. Uh, he also was really negative on Tesla, but Tesla appears to have survived at a price that maybe doesn't make sense longer than he could. Interesting. I'll tell you, if you're writing a movie script about the the true top, it's when a legendary investor like Jim Chanos runs out of money because the market's gone crazy longer than he can raise funds. Like that, I'm not saying that it's happened. I'm not predicting the future, but I've just said the Hollywood script says right about now, <laughs> the bubble burst. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. Point. I love it. Is it fishbowl time? It's fishbowl time. I'm going to reach in to the old fishbowl, and I want to hit on this piece by Kyla Scanlon, how social media shapes economic perception. We've talked about economic perception here in the past, how people feel the economy's going and how that is aligned with or generally not aligned with the facts of the situation. But this hits on both that as well as the impact of social media on that. So I've hit on a few points, and especially there's this tweet that she includes in this blog post that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. So one, I love this quote here. A lot of people will shrug off how people feel because people are people and it's volatile and prone to change. But there's always something within the weeds of these whispers that can be informative to thinking about change. But what she's saying is that people might be like, look, I want facts, not feelings. I want facts, not feelings, but the way that people feel, there's something there. It's worth looking into it because a lot of times feelings are what drives narrative and narrative can drive more. A couple pieces around those feelings that she highlights here. The first, I'm going to use her headlines for the most part here. The first is things are fine, but they could be better. So Americans, they're richer now than they have been at any point, but the expectations of what now would look like is different than what a lot of people have in mind. Like that, that's one point that's brought up. Another is that as people are looking at some of the facts, there's a growing cause for concern generally. We, you know, I've been yelling about this for 18 months. We've been talking about the auto delinquencies, credit card debt, all that kind of stuff. That's the first point. Things are fine, but they could be better. The second is people don't want slower inflation. What they want is prices to go down. Now, do they actually want that? The, no, that's the impact. What they think they want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's another one. The the third the third thing she writes out here is that the labor market's not feeling good to people. And there are a couple points one I hadn't thought about before. So the first point that I had is that people are now slower to get jobs than they have been in the past. So it's harder to get work and less people are leaving their jobs. Those two things go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's one point. The point I hadn't thought about was she was saying that there is a there's anger that's being caused between customers and people that work in service because corporations are passing off costs onto the consumer. So she's like, if you work a service job and somebody comes in and now they're having to pay 40% more for, for their food, they're going to get angry at the person serving them. They're not going to get angry at the company necessarily. And she said that's causing some rifts. I thought that was interesting. I hadn't really thought about I it. I mean, that's like the Dollar Tree thing, right? When, when Dollar Tree raised their prices, so their standard price is a buck. 25 instead of a buck i'm i'm angry just at that and then when they try and streamline their i'll call it their processes so basically you have one person run the entire store so your level of service goes down because their costs of employment are up it's this perfect storm of everything is worse it's more costly the level of service is worse the yep. talent they're hiring might be worse like it, it just and i think that happens everywhere where prices go way up level of service goes way down and the consumer's sitting there going, this sucks. But yeah, True don't story. be mad at your service worker is the ultimate True story. right here. It's not their fault. A quick aside, as we are known to do. Quick aside. So Dollar Tree. I was at an event this week, and I was talking to this C-level executive from a big company. Yep. And they were, they were eating popcorn. And they went, have you had Brim's popcorn? It's like, I, never, I, don't know, I don't know what Brim's is. You, know, you got to get that Brim's popcorn. So in my mind... I'm imagining this is a popcorn you find at Tiffany's, like, like popcorn that it comes with gold. It's the gold schlager of popcorn. 
Yeah. But then the next thing they said brought me one back down to reality and two just made me chuckle to the utmost. So they went, you can find Brim's popcorn at Dollar Tree. And I was like, oh, okay. And then they said, they go, okay, you get out of here and you go get that Dollar Tree popcorn. <laughs> Couple seconds of pause, but check that expiration date before you buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was like, I just died. All right, back to the back to the piece here. Okay, so those are some of the things she said are going on in like perceptions. And then another another thing on perceptions is she was saying that people don't know what Joe Biden has done in his administration. So she named a couple examples of things that the administration's done that are pretty big moves, whether you agree with them or not, like they're big moves, but people don't feel like he's done much. And they don't believe what they're hearing, which is something we talked about before, and specifically around inflation. So people don't believe that inflation has gone down as much. And I think a part of this has to do with just ideology, right? And just not believing the other side, which happens to both sides. I think another part of this goes back to what we talked about before is that what people really want is prices to go down. And this combines with a third point that there's a misunderstanding of what inflation is. People, I think, oftentimes think that inflation is price level. And so when inflation goes down, price level goes down. And so if you are hearing inflation has gone down a lot, and you see that your prices are still going up. I can see where that causes some cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Here's, here's one thing that I thoroughly enjoyed. She included this tweet from someone who goes by George. And it's at I do bad takes is the handle, <laughs> which is probably the best handle on all of X slash Twitter before I'd read it. The point of this is saying that people are complaining about a thing and about the economy. People are complaining about the economy and saying the economy is bad while simultaneously talking about things in their life that represent the opposite. This is the tweet. The economy can be summed up by an experience I had at a recent family reunion. Everyone was complaining about how bad the economy was and how expensive everything was. I pointed out that for the first time ever, every adult present had a good paying job they liked. Three people present had just been bragging about doubling their salaries. Two people had just gotten back from their first ever Europe trips. The raises and the jobs were things they felt they had earned. The prices going up were the government's fault. Mm -hmm. Should we just end the show right now? No, what, what Kayla's talking about here is so critical for our politicians. Who's the guy in the 80s that just stood there at the debate and screamed, it's the economy, stupid? A more accurate quote is, it's how the voting population feels about the economy, stupid. That's it. Right now, That's right. by most measures, the economy is in a pretty great spot and has been for a pretty long time. But no one feels that way. Yeah. James Carville. That's James Carville? I just looked it up. James Carville. Huh. Okay. I love this point. I want to go back to well, he, something she talked he, about. He coined yeah. it. He was advising Bill Clinton, but he coined it while advising Bill Clinton. In this article, she also talks about negative news. Yeah. And that's true. how negative news might tilt people's feelings about the economy. Well, I just read this fascinating piece. I think it's in Morgan Housel's latest book, but I'm not sure. I read a couple, I read like three books in the past two weeks, so I'm getting them confused. But uh, simply articulated the, the fact that when local newspapers died, one consequence of that is local newspapers had pretty much a fixed, fixed subscriber base. So they could write articles with a more optimistic tilt because there were only so many newspapers that you could sell. Your town was just only so big. So you had much more license to write whatever you wanted to write. It could be about the high school football team. It could be anything, right? But when it became more of a national news source, people thought the total addressable market size was the 330 million Americans. And so you started to craft headlines and stories to what would get the most readership. And that tilts negatively. Like when news becomes a commodity in a national source, it's natural. And she has a great gar 
uh, graph here that shows just how negative that's become over the past like 20 years. So I think that plays a role too. I think the, the last three election cycles have been the most negative yes. in terms of how people feel. And it's disconnected from facts. Absolutely. And there is this Axios piece this week that pointed to just put some data behind what you were talking about around newspapers. The, the high level fact is that one third of the newspapers in the U.S. that existed in 2005 will be gone by next year. And it has this map of all the local newspapers across the country and showing like their status. It's it was pretty cool. We'll put it on the Substack. Yeah, I agree with that. And so, and so then you have the news and you have social media, which amplifies a lot of that as well. And so you've got, you've got perception, you have the amplification of perception and the amplification is going to, to your point, bend negatively for reasons that you just stated. I love this piece. I thought it was, what do I thought we, it was solid. What do we do I like her writing. It, I, what do we do about it? You and I, I don't know. But I think the reason to talk about it, here's, I'll answer the question of like, why talk about it? What's the purpose? The purpose is to understand that this is the case. And so when you see negative headlines, like, let's look at the facts and then make your own choice because there's going to be news bent. I'm not talking about left, right here. It's not, not from that. I just like facts. Just like, look at, read what you're reading, read multiple sources, look at facts and make your own choices because our perception, generally speaking, is off and it's being amplified in mostly a negative light. But just like we talked about with the book Factfulness a year ago or so, mm-hmm. is that when you look at the data, things, generally speaking, are getting better. It doesn't mean they're always where we want them to be, but generally speaking, they're getting better. But all the the like narratives, at least, and news generally is saying that things are getting worse. And just understand that that's the narrative. That's my takeaway. What's next? I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, I, I want to throw you a curveball, actually. Have you read Same as Ever, the new Morgan Housel book? I have not yet. I have not yet. I'm okay. I'm in the middle of three books right now. And when I complete those, I'm on it. So I read it a couple of weeks back right when it came out because I was at my conference was kind of a, a book release party for him. So I want to touch on a few things. We'll do a deep dive probably with uh, both co-hosts on the book because it's really solid not surprisingly but there's two things i want to mention in that book so i had a chance to to chat with him basically the day after it came out and i just read the thing the book i can do this without any spoilers for you Dougals. it's about the things that don't change right and so we often think about we think of life and investing through a lens of hey what's different this time like so i can make a bet on it and he's saying that's a trap that's really hard to play. Predictions are really challenging. And so instead, focus on the things that won't change and make decisions based on that. You're going to hate this, Dougals. Effectively, Uh-oh. that means just focus on mean reversion. Effectively, that's what the book means. <laughs> Telling you, you read it, you're going to see. You're going to be like, Skippy was right the whole time. And here's, here's 200 pages to prove it. <laughs> Go on. When I got to chat with him, I'm basically saying, listen, do you think this book is packaged in a way that these lessons stick with people and they actually become better at personal finance and investing? Because the main theme of the book for me is kind of like, do what your grandpa might have told you or whatever. The, who, whoever was the wise figure in your family as it comes to finances, they probably told you, Save more than you're comfortable saving because you don't know what turbulence is going to come, whether it's a global pandemic or something else. And survive another day goes back to your poker analogy you're always talking about. And then slowly grow your assets and you're going to be just fine. You know, like those are the same as ever lessons that come out in the book. So I'm talking to him about if this moves the needle at all. His blanket answer without hesitation is, Absolutely not. People are horrible at finance. People have always been horrible at finance. People will always be horrible at finance because if a few people take these lessons in, save a little more money than maybe they're comfortable doing, make smart personal finance decisions, the stock market 
grows because of that, because more people are invested in the stock market and that fuels a bubble that your neighbor takes advantage of by investing in crypto. Your neighbor just can't resist. You probably can't resist because you watch your neighbor get rich. It Basically, the human cycles of panic and mania that come with bubbles are just inherent in our being and there's no change in it. So, sorry, that's a really long-winded uh, way of asking you a question. Do you agree with that answer? That we're pretty much hardwired this way. And what happens in investing is just an outcome of how we're hardwired for survival. And the bubbles and manias that happen because of that go back to our brain being wired for almost hunters and gatherers rather than for making smart personal finance decisions. Are you saying there's no free will? <laughs> Joking. The The point I will agree with is that for most people, they're likely not going to change behavior over the long term, maybe in the short term, but over the long term because of things like this. But I think some people will, like, like as you mentioned, like some people will and they'll invest in the stock market and they'll do the thing and then it'll go up. But humans and things like the stock market are investing are diametrically opposed. Like it does not make sense. We love short-term gratification. We are loss averse much more, right? As we talked about before, you get a lot more uh, endorphins. Oh, sorry, you get a lot. Um, what's the what's the opposite of endorphins? <laughs> you get a it's lot more, more painful hurt, to lose a dollar than it is to make a dollar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Thank you. I was like, what is the opposite of an endorphin? A de a demorphin? But you, yeah, it's much more painful. And so the whole loss aversion thing, I think, I think our, yeah, we are, we are hardwired to be bad at all of this stuff, which is partially why there's an entire industry of people that take care of money. Now, spoiler alert, those people also hardwired to suck at this. Yeah. And a lot <laughs> Not of cases all of them. are worse. Yeah. So I, I agree. I agree with that point, but I, I still believe even, even with that. That it's worth trying because a couple oh, I, people here, there that change behaviors creates longitudinal impact that is positive for themselves and their descendants. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, went, I, went, I went unnecessarily deep there for a second. I don't like this answer. I wanted Morgan to say, yeah, I think we're going to move the needle. I mean, my follow-up question to him was like, okay, we're not going to change that many people, but if 10% of the population is is good at personal finance right now, can we move the needle to make it 12%? And he's like, probably not. <laughs> yeah. You wanted him and to look into why. your soul. You wanted him to look into your soul and say, if just one person changes their life because of my book, it's worth it. <laughs> and he's saying, no, the same, the same as ever stuff is mean reversion based on poor human behavior. A more articulate way of saying this, goes back to your boy, Herman Minsky, who is featured in the book. Oh, there and you go. Here we go. So this is what happens with humans. When the economy is stable, people get optimistic. When people get optimistic, they go into debt. When they go into debt, the economy becomes unstable. Minsky's big idea was that stability is destabilizing. The lack of recessions actually leads to the next recession. That's all right, man. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that's all right. Yeah, the Min Minsky moment stuff, I think, is very right. Look it up, people. Look it up. Minsky was an economist back in the day and said exactly what you just stated there, which I think is powerful. So what that means is value investing is the way to go. Human behavior is broken, and I will continue to collect massive investing returns over here at Dougal's. There's the main takeaway from the book. I think that's actually the last paragraph in the book if i remember correctly i heard none of that and what you just <laughs> said that's perfectly fine okay i'm gonna shift we cool with that yeah okay i'm reaching back into the fishbowl and i will talk i'll continue the path of saying what if you do change that behavior what if you do invest what if you do that over long periods of time and then you drop that mother load upon your children inheritance people i'm gonna talk about inheritance this is Washington Post piece that is succinct, fact-based, and I think this is good. chef's kiss up in here. It is written by Andrew Van Dam, no relation, I don't think, to our, our actor friend from back in the day. And it's called How Inheritance Data Secretly Explains U.S. Inequality. 
the one thing that I, one little piece of beef that I have is, I'm not sure that this is all that much of a secret, so to speak, that Inheritance did this, but the data wasn't necessary, wasn't necessarily widely known. But I think people generally speaking are like, yeah, you inherit a bunch of money and you, you know, you can do something with it. But here's some of the facts. So a little over one in five, 20%. So a little over 20% of US households had received an inheritance at some point in their lives as of 2022. If you look at people, just people in their 70s, so you've been alive longer, that goes to two out of five. I'm going to call that about 40%. That means 60% of people that are in their 70s have not. So you still say that the majority of people in this country over their lifetimes will not see inheritance of any kind. They have these graphs in there that show one shows the age grouping. And the percent of those people that have had an inheritance and, and unsurprisingly, it goes up as life goes on because it's more likely you're going to have people that have passed away by that point. But I think that one's interesting. Another one that I thought was interesting was they showed the proportion of money that has come from parent versus a grandparent versus a relative like an aunt or uncle. And they showed the difference of that as age goes on. And it's more and more likely that is going to be a parent versus a grandparent that provides money. Um, especially as you start to get older. thought that was interesting. Now some additional data. The average American has inherited $58,000 as of 2022. So that that's calculated across the board. If you include all the people that have inherited nothing, it comes to $58,000. If you only look at the people that have inherited something, the average is $266,000. That shows the difference. 58, 266. We've talked about how race comes into play here. And so people that identify as white are three times as likely to inherit than people that are black, Hispanic, or Asian. So if you look at uh, 2022, uh, for for white folks, you're looking at about almost $300,000 is the average amount it's inherited. If you look at Hispanic or black folks, you're closer to 50K. So it's a pretty sizable difference. And then here, it starts to get even more juicy. And feel free to jump in any moment. I don't mean to occupy the whole time, but this gets even more juicy. Here's a quote. It's not just the dollar amount that you get when your parents die. It's the safety net that you had to start a business when you were younger or the ability to put down a larger share of your savings into a down payment and a house because you know that you can save less for retirement. Yeah, It's a that huge one hits, point. Right. That one hits because so I'm hopping up on the soapbox here. This is get my it. recommendation to read. Get it. Bill Watch Perkins your Achilles with zero, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yep. So, inheriting money in your seventies doesn't do you any good. <laughs> Literally, does nobody any good. Now, I'm not claiming that if parents are capable, I'm not claiming that they want to even spend the money. They probably just thought this money is for me, and then they died before they thought they were gonna die. So, some of this is just it's not about the plan to pass money down. But if your plan is to pass money down, and if you have the means to pass money down, do it earlier rather than later so that safety net allows your child to take those bets if they want to take those bets. Because that is quite a blessing. Dude. Like, that's a game changer. If you're able to do these things you want to do, whether it's travel, start a business, or anything else, it's huge. So a couple points there. One is what you're saying has some logic to it, makes sense. And part of what this is saying is that let's say you have $20,000 as a 32-year-old, whatever. I'm just throwing that out there. You've got $20,000 and you see that your parents, when they pass away, they're going to give you $5 million. Mm -hmm. I'm just making up a number. You can go, my $20,000, I can actually use all of it to do whatever yeah. I want to do right now because of that. That's like another side of the coin. So whether you're going to get some of that money from them or not, you're just like your, your future value doesn't necessarily have to come from the money that you have today. It doesn't have to fully compound. So you can, you can bet it. Like even if you lose out, you still have a safety net. That's There's one part. Enhanced safety net on multiple levels, even if you never have a check handed to you because yeah. you can go broke and still have a place to stay and someone to, get you back on your feet too, financially. Yeah. 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 The other thing 
that doesn't go against the Bill Perkins point necessarily, but it's more of a probably potentially an ideological difference. If you do not believe in paying taxes, or if you believe in paying a heck of a lot less tax, and you have substantial assets, the benefit of the estate tax laws is in your favor if you do not pass down that money during your time. And there's a part of it, this all depends on the amount, and it's, there's, a, there's a lot of nuance here, but, and this, this article talks about this too. To summarize for folks, is that when, if you have an asset, let's just give an example. If you have an asset that's worth uh, $10,000 today, that you bought for $1,000 in the past, and you sell it, you're paying tax on that $9,000. Mm-hmm. If you die with that $10,000 asset, the government then says that the new cost basis of that asset is $10,000. So then the taxes for your, your descendants that inherit it is a lot lower. Some people believe in paying taxes. Some people believe in not paying taxes. I'm just saying that I could see where some folks would say like, look, I might give you just enough while I'm live to do X, Y, or Z, but this house, I'm not going, I'm not going to transfer this house. I'm not going to sell this house right now because your taxes are going to be a lot lower if I die with the house. Okay, one mini rant there. If you hate your kids so much that you're worried, like it, it would hurt your feelings to give the government a few bucks so they could in- actually enjoy the money that's given to them. Like, if your kids' enjoyment is less important than paying taxes, then <laughs> yeah, yeah. But okay, let, let's, let's 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 take this for real though. Like, depending on the amount of money that we're talking about. I would say it's, and I don't have data on this, so it's just speculation, but I would say it is rare that in a parent that has this amount of money, their kid is struggling. That's true. Because you, you know what I mean? You have other advantages of probably private schooling, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. And over the last 20 years, the, the uh, state tax threshold has increased substantially. So in the state tax threshold, that that's the amount that you actually don't need to um, be paying taxes if you if your state is less than. And so now it's like $13 million is that amount. Let me, let, yeah, let me just say this, because uh, I, I see this with companies, I help too. Some people are so adverse to taxes that they're like, oh no, we're gonna do anything on earth to avoid taxes. When the glaringly obvious rational decision involves paying a few taxes like <laughs> go back to a company yeah. your job as a company is to make money if you are somehow being like but i don't want to pay taxes so i don't want to make money that you're letting the tail wag the dog <laughs> don't do that people okay if your goal if you have means and your goal is to give your kids some money give your kids some money and deal with the tax consequences don't like do I need to go coach prime on you? Let the main thing be the main thing. That's my whole point here. Just like, yeah. And w- so what I'm about to say uh, is not, it's not meant to be negative toward um, any specific individual because a lot of the stuff just isn't well understood. But I had someone at work that came to me and said, I just got a substantial raise. Do I actually want to take it? Because if I think if I take it, I'm going to be in a higher tax bracket. Oh my God. You're not. No, no. That's what I'm talking about. This is what and I'm talking about. I said, I cannot give you financial advice, but I'm going to send you three links and please read them. Yeah. Okay. So let's dive back to the article. So <laughs> d- the race discrepancy is disheartening. Unfortunately, it's not surprising. I don't, I didn't get, I don't know that it's easy to figure out why. Some of it is, that a lot the race of discrepancy country, yeah some of it is a lot that a lot of wealth in this country is based on home ownership yep. and going back to the 30s when we weren't giving loans to people that weren't white it's like some of that is a factor here and then some of there. sorry this is very complex and there's tons of factors yeah, but like yeah, yeah. how do you think about that and how do we close that gap Oh, I mean, that's this is a whole we need to have a whole nother episode just around that. But I do think part of what you're talking about is the there was there were limitations. There still are some 
but like structural law limitations on the ability of some peoples in this country to acquire assets, including homeownership. That's like one. Uh, because of things like that and other societal factors, there's a distrust in the system by people of different races. So therefore, there's not an accumulation of assets or investing in stock market, putting your money in other places. That's another. There has also been the uh, less of an ability to even get income that allows for savings. Like if you look at the uh, income differential, right? Um, I'm going to get the numbers wrong here, but if you take a white male and they make a dollar, uh, a white female, or I think females on average is like 80 cents roughly. And if you look at black females, it's like 50 cents or something like that. That's like some, it's like that large. So even yeah. getting income, there's like lots of factors that go into this. Uh, so it's, it's very complex, but in the end, getting assets and decreasing debt are the ways to accumulate wealth, just simply put, mm -hmm. but, but anyway, but I will state this, this fact, I, I didn't look more into it, but it's something that's in the article. It's just saying that if you look at how much someone inherits, it can account for more than 60% of US wealth inequality. I'm taking that at face value. It's fascinating. I would yeah. have to look at the research. Right, also very complex, that. but that was striking to me too. And I think that's ultimately where I'm going. You're right. It'd be like a three episode breakdown if we tried to to solve any of this, if it's even solvable, which I don't know that it is. But like that is staggering to me. And it goes to the multiple levels of safety nets we just talked about, whether that's an actual check or whether it's the things that having that wealth as you grow up can provide that create a, another safety. Yeah. Yeah. Really fascinating piece. We'll put this on the sub stack too. It's a relatively short article with a bunch of facts in it that I find to be interesting and good to educate ourselves upon it. Okay. My fishbowl has a quiz for you. Oh, we've been on quizzes in a while. Uh, name the percentage of buyers in America that use a real estate agent. Buyers of anything or buyers of houses? Houses. 79. 89%. Okay. Name that percentage across all countries, all available countries. There's a tilt towards uh, US allies like Australia, Europe, the typical crew. 26%. 33%. In Australia, that's less than 5% of people. In the UK, it's less than 5% of people. In the Netherlands, it's about 20% of people. There's a whole article here. We're not. We're just going to talk at a high level. Yeah, I was just uneducated, just flabbergasted that there's that stark difference between because you grow up where you grow up and you talk to people who bought their home with an agent, you know, 20 years ago. And then the people that did it 20 years before that, I, I had no clue we were an outlier here. I didn't know that either. It's not necessarily surprising, not because of real estate necessarily, but just because we stick middle people in the middle of everything. You want to buy that example. stock? You want to buy that stock? You need a financial advisor to, to like help you with that. Are they good at what they do? Not necessarily, but it's so complex. Like we, we create these complex systems that there has to be an expert that either has knowledge or access to get you into whatever the thing is. Like we do this over a variety of industries. And so it's, not necessarily surprising to me, but yeah, but okay, this is so in 1985 to pick a year, you want to sell your house, you need someone that knows how to um, get the word out. And that's like old school newspapers, running open houses, posting signs. Maybe they have an office on Main Street that people walk by and check all the brochures. Like, it's way harder to get the word out that you're selling your house. And I can understand being like, listen, if I do this by myself, I'm going to put a sign in the yard and only people that drive by are going to look at it. And my buyer pool is so limited. Yeah, but you're talking about buying hurt houses. Me on price. You're talking about people uh, using real estate agents to buy a house. It's, yeah, but it's part of the same equation. System? And, you know, like the, the fee is typically paid by the seller. Anyway, yes. Um, let me continue the quiz because you seem interested in this. We're going to talk typical broker commissions worldwide. First of all, there's one country that's higher than the US. Eh, maybe two. 
Any guesses? I'm going to go UAE and oh, respond. UAE. <laughs> Japan, 6.2%. That's going to be Although, my next guess. Yeah. Not, yeah, yeah. Argentina, <laughs> 6%. All right. How about give me a number now? What's the brokerage commission in France? 1.7%. 5%. China. 1.7%. Two and a half. Oh, getting closer. Netherlands. 1.7%. Two. The UK is the lowest at 1.3%. Oh, I was going to guess 1.7. I just, I just don't even know. Like this is, I'm shook. I didn't realize there was this much variability. (laughs) I didn't the, thing, the things that get you shook. <laughs> and a good real estate agent can be a huge benefit. Um, yeah. I'm not throwing shade. I just, yeah. So, and for those who don't know, you're going to hear a lot more about this because there was court ruling three weeks back that accused the National Association of Realtors of basically price fixing and rewarded $2 billion. And that was just in one state. So, the other 49 states have class action suits now. Like the, the whole structure of this industry may change and keep your eyes peeled for it because I didn't know there was another way to do it. Apparently there is. It is it is fascinating. Not as surprising to me necessarily, but fascinating. And also, by the way, when I was talking about we just stick middle people in the middle of things, I didn't I don't necessarily mean that that I don't know if that's good or bad. And I'm not necessarily saying that people are bad when they're in there but some are obviously because some are in any job but it is what we do i just i just meant it's, it is what the u.s does whether it's good or bad yeah can we just continue on the quiz piece um <laughs> all right so in what fields do fathers pass on the advantage to their sons this is worded awkwardly i'm gonna say it a different yeah. way oh I, so, I saw this one yeah Okay, so don't cheat, but maybe maybe you already have cheated. So if you are president, how much more likely is your son of being president than your average citizen? It's like 2,000. Or it's like some, some very large number. 1.5 million times more likely. <laughs> <laughs> if you're, uh, this goes to our inheritance article. If you're a billionaire, your son is... 30,000 times more likely to be a billionaire than your average person. Of course, right? The other I mean, really fun ones... Hold on, let's step back to president for a second. It, it, uh, if you just look at the numbers, like just quick math, we've had 46 of these, right? Yeah. We've had 46 presidents, and we've had multiple presidents that were related to one another. Like just that fact by itself. I mean, I'm not going to do the like, nerd data science thing the sample size is way too small obviously but it's the only <laughs> sample size you got when you're yeah, talking about yeah. that job exactly no i mean senators almost the senators you're if your parents i should say is a senator you're like nine thousand times more likely reality the sports star, ones, the sports ones i go. thought were interesting the difference between the sports nba nfl i remember there was some difference between those two so nba player uh 1700 times more likely but like an nfl player only 64 times more likely i contend this is due to height there's another breakdown Mm. i saw this week of basically your likelihood of playing in the nba based on certain heights and if you're like seven four you have a very good chance of being an (laughs) nba player (laughs) and if you're five seven you have an infinitesimal chance of being an nba player and i would think that height passes down and some coordination and skill yeah. if your dad yeah, plays in the nba yeah. um but i again i'd contend that like WNBA players are passing it down at a similar rate there's some skills there yeah okay back to your fishbowl so the last thing i want to talk about is this piece called r.i.p goldman by bethany mclean bethany's been around for a hot minute good journalism from bethany over the last like 30 years bethany used to work at goldman sachs back in the day First job out of college was an analyst at Goldman Sachs. So one, I want to recap something she states around her time there and then get on some highlights of the piece. So she says she spent three years there. They were long, working 100-hour weeks, and she was unhappy. But they were also very formative, 
She learned how to think about how a business makes money. She learned how to work really hard. And she learned how not to be intimidated. Like that's a, it's a good balanced view. It's not necessarily just bad to go through these times. There's a lot of learning that comes from it. I thought that was an important point to pass along to our youngsters. What the core of this piece is about is how Goldman has been getting a heck of a lot of bad press recently. And a lot of that press has come from leaks from inside the company. And this is a fact that has been shocking to a number of people that have worked there because they were like, yes, yeah, stuff, this stuff happened a lot over the course of the years that I was there, but it never left Goldman. Like what happened at Goldman stayed at Goldman and now it's all coming out. Why is that? And what's the impact? That's the point of the piece. The, this piece goes, it covers the history, like the last 30 years history of Goldman and what's happened um, from the time it went public. It went public in 1999, how the partnership has changed, how partners make money. It goes through a lot of facts like that. So it's worth a read. It's a little bit long, but I think it's it's worth a read. One of the pieces that stuck out the most to me is this line. If the firm is no longer the most desirable place to work on Wall Street, then Goldman Sachs, as we've known it, is truly dead. The reason that this stuck out so much to me, well, there are a couple. One of the reasons this stuck out so much to me is because of the, the power of reputation and brand and not necessarily just the product with an organization like this and the importance of that. And also for me personally, I used to work at McKinsey and Company and just a lot of the attributes that were being described in here, they're going through very different things, but McKinsey is also under attack in a lot of ways. McKinsey's in a, I'd call it a somewhat similar spot. It's not all more of their dirty laundry is being aired publicly. Yeah. And, but that line went, yeah, if McKinsey was no longer the most desirable consulting firm to go to, it changes everything mm-hmm. about the firm. There's so much that relies upon that one that one point, like the acquisition of talent and the desirability of the place as a talent pool. Let's let's expand that point because to me that's the most interesting part about this article. But let's I want to try and do it without talking about like investment banking or consulting. It's kind of true with Facebook and hiring engineering talent or Google, you know, like there's these brands. It's kind of true with Apple and the justification to pay like three times what that same cell phone is worth with the same exact features with another competitor. It's so much of the business model is the brand and the mystique. And if you lose that, then if you tie it back to Goldman, you might not be able to recruit the best talent, but also there's a lot of talk about the pricing at Goldman and how the customers weren't necessarily happy. Again, I'm trusting her take on this, but it's well-researched that they weren't happy with the prices. They weren't always happy with the level of service, but they felt like they could have nowhere else to go. And so what does that make Goldman Sachs? Historically, a very profitable, if not the most profitable firm in the space. It's not the case anymore. <laughs> not yeah. at all. They're public and you can see when they struggle and you can watch them struggle in real time and you can watch them make terrible mistakes with trying to, to go into like basically retail banking. I mean, that was I could have told them that was idiotic because I have experience with what makes money in banking. So they seem to have lost the mystique and that's it's fascinating. I I yeah, I agree. They're I'm trying to, as you stated, like not go down the the banking and consulting route and having this conversation. Although I'm, well, I'm and we to. can. Uh, I'm not no, trying no, no, not no. to. I was just trying to make it a a like higher level point. No, I I think uh, I I think it's a it's worthwhile to not on the partnership piece. The other part that I found to be interesting is the because if you go back to the the leaks that are coming from the inside, the fact that the partnership isn't as strong, and some of the the data that she passed along that contributes to that is that when they went public, the partnership owned 60% of Goldman. They didn't say what it is right now, but it's, it's, they said it's a sliver at this yeah. point. So, and the, and it also was an equal partnership. So if there were a hundred partners, all a hundred partners owned 1% basically of that 60%, that's not the right numbers, but um, just to give an example. And so what's happened as Goldman has gone 
from partnership into more corporation, like adopted more of what a typical company might be, that's no longer an equal partnership. And so it's based on performance, like business you bring in and whatnot. And that is making some partners feel not as valuable or not as valued, right? Uh, and that's one part of it. And she says the solidarity of the partnership is no longer created and reinforced by the firm's financial structure because of that. And so now you have people that are willing to be like, well, I think this thing sucks. I'm going to tell people I think it sucks because the financial structure is no longer fully in support of my future is the feeling there. Here's the thing I want, and I'm going to ask the listeners to help me. I am so enthralled with different partnership structures, their incentives, and the results they receive. Uh, reading this article, it's very easy to argue that Goldman never should have went public and should have continued their previous partnership structure because it helped build that mystique because there was less financial incentive to leak negative news. But everybody does this differently. All partnerships are structured in a slightly different way. Is there a book, is there research that talks about how those are done and the, the pros and cons of different approaches? I've been trying to find it for mm. years. If anyone knows of anything, please send it my way. I want an in-depth study on how to structure partnerships and how those incentives drive different results. Hey, I'd, I'd love to read that. Please do. SkippyDougals at gmail.com. Okay. Um, I need to tie up one loose end. It's about Dave Ramsey, but it's not really about Dave Ramsey. Morning started an awesome chart. Here's the deal. Regardless of your uh, mix between equities and bonds, there's some variability there with if you have this nest egg, how long it will survive. But effectively, they made a chart that said, here's your equity weighting on the x-axis and, or excuse me, on the y-axis, on the x-axis. Here's how long, uh, here's the time frame. And we'll, we'll tell you how long that money will last with a 90% success rate, right? So and this, is, this is taking out 8% or what's the? It, it tells you the percentage to take out in order yeah. to survive for that period of time. So a simple example, 60-40 portfolio. If you need it to last for 10 years, you can take out 9.4%. And if you do that, you have a 90% success rate of having more than $1 in your account 10 years later. Got it. I, I love this chart because it very simply says, and, and I'm going to summarize it for you. If you have about 10 years, you can take about 9% out per year and survive 90% of the time. If you need it to last for 20 years, you can take about 5% out and it will, you'll survive 90% of the time. If you need it for 40 years, you could take about 3.3% out. This is the fact-based analysis that actually needs to be part of these conversations. It's just what, What's your time frame? How do your portfolio, what's your mix of assets? And here's a pretty good idea of your maximum withdrawal rate. I just thought it was really solid. Yeah. I love it. And you, you said this is looking at average stock market returns over what, a hundred year period? But what's the, what's the period that it's averaging across? Yeah, they did it back to uh, 1926, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's it. It's a pretty solid, it's the data set we have, right? It's a pretty solid data set uh, to where, use for this. I agree with that. It's very solid. Where it ties back to Dave Ramsey is his lies are fine if you only need to have your money last for 10 years, right? <laughs> wow. Well, I don't know Our... what else to call them at that point because they're just not factual. But if you want if you want your money to last into perpetuity, like he said it would, it's unfortunately more like, three to three and a half percent is the only way to now again a 90 percent success rate maybe doesn't matter to some people maybe they're risk takers and they only want a 75 percent success rate that's fine but this chart will also be on the Substack. it's it's really helpful i think all right you got anything else no that's it cool thank you everybody as usual you can hit us up for premium subscriptions helps to support the show at skippydougals.supercast.com. Skippydougals at gmail.com is where our listener mail goes. Please rate and review. 
See you next week. Peace.